I will trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean. Delighted as always to be joined by Paul. How are you doing, Paul? Hi, Gerard. Uh, so this is the seventh in our special series looking at Brexit and the impact it's going to have on the Northwest or might have on the Northwest as things may go. First of all, thanks to your funders, who are the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, and then Halliwell Trust's core funders, Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland, Derry City and Strabane District Council, Ireland Fund, and Department for Foreign Affairs. As always, I'm going to put the warning out there that this is recorded on the 22nd of June, and if anybody takes any mad head staggers between now and the 25th when this is introduced, we're not ignoring it. So, Paul, first of all, House of Commons, meaningful vote, Theresa May seems to have promised all things to all people. What's been happening? Well, we all got excited and thought, well, perhaps actually the government would be defeated in the House of Commons, having already been defeated in the House of Lords, and perhaps this meant that actually it would be impossible for there to be a no-deal outcome in Brexit. Mm-hmm. And we were disappointed because the Tory rebels stopped rebelling. Basically, they towed the party line, they did what the Prime Minister wanted, and that means that actually... Firstly, the government continues to have a majority in the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it still means there's a possibility of there being a no-deal outcome. I would personally estimate that maybe there's a 30 or 40% chance of there actually not being a deal between the UK government and the European Union. Okay. And the other thing that we now know, Gerard, is the fact that although the government is saying it's fully prepared for a no-deal outcome, that it's got everything covered, According to a story in the Financial Times, actually the civil service several months ago stopped preparing for a no-deal outcome. And if there is not a deal, then it's just chaos. And the absence of a backstop, God knows what's going to happen. Well, the backstop's a slightly different issue, which is the fact that uh, the backstop is supposed to deal with the question of the Irish border, which, of course, our listeners will be particularly concerned about. And it's not necessarily good news because... The European Union is continuing to assist. The backstop must apply for an indefinite period and must only apply to Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. The government has said, no, it's going to be time limited until the end of 2021. And also that it has to apply to the whole of the United Kingdom, which is basically the DUP demand. There is, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why, although it had been expected, the basis of the deal would be agreed at the European Union summit on the 28th of June. It now looks as if that's basically off the table. And actually, the next deadline will be October. But again, another story in the Financial Times says that actually officials don't expect the October deadline to be met. So it will be November or possibly December before a deal is done, if there is a deal. Okay. This is great. Uh, And Jean-Claude Juncker was in Dublin again just in the last few days, reinforcing the position that, if you like, Europe has Ireland's back when it comes to these things as well. Yes, the UK's position is, uh, shall we say, you know, to be a bit uh, blunt about it, the UK would like Ireland to be peeled off from the rest of the European Union in terms of the negotiating position. Mm -hmm. And what uh, Jean-Claude Juncker has said and what Leo Varadkar has said and what Simon Coveney has said is no. Their interests are fully aligned and there will be no separation of interest between Ireland and the rest of the European Union. Leo Varadkar even came out the other night and said that this hasn't serving Britain well for the future because if it's not sticking by its commitments it's going to be even harder when it does leave the EU to 
broker trade agreements. Well, this is true. I mean, you know, the UK is not showing good faith in its negotiations. Uh, you know, it, there had been an understanding at the end of last year in terms of what the position on the Irish border will be. Now the perception of the Irish government and the European Union is that the UK government has backslided out mm-hmm. of the backstop. And so we still don't really know what's going to happen about the border. Speaking of borders, one of the things that might be happening more often now are passport checks. Yes, there was a very interesting story in the Irish Times which reported on a conference speech by a senior revenue official from the Irish Republic who said that uh, they expected a Ryanair-type solution to the border. And what they mean is that uh, Ryanair will ask for your passport even if they don't theoretically need to show your passport. Mm. So the implication of that is that when you fly from Northern Ireland to Great Britain or go by ferry from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, the actual operator, the airline or the freight, uh, the ferry operator will ask for the passport. So right. in other words, it won't be the UK government that requires passports to be shown as you enter Great Britain. Uh, in practice, it will be, if you like, uh, co-opted out into the hands of the airline or the ferry operator. What that would mean is basically there is a border in the yeah. Irish Sea, but at the same time, the UK government could say to the DUP, we haven't asked for any border. And yeah. in any case, it seems extremely likely there will be checks on goods going from the island of Ireland going over to Great Britain. So a de facto border in the Irish Sea. The British government also, during the last week, has also announced the position on non-EU citizens in Britain in the future, or EU citizens in Britain in the future, sorry. <laughs> yes, that's right. When, once the UK is no longer in the EU, obviously there'll be a lot of EU citizens um, who live in the UK. And by this, we don't mean people from the Republic of Ireland because they're mm. still subject to the common travel area. But uh, people like my son and my stepdaughter uh, who have our, uh, have uh, German passports um, but live in the UK, they will be given the opportunity to pay £65 to register online and providing they don't have a criminal record, which my kids don't, uh, then Good they stuff. will be able to continue to live in the UK. Right. Um, there is contri- criticism about this. Some of the tabloid newspapers have been complaining about it quite a lot and some English voters have been but that is the announcement by the Home Secretary Sergeant Jarvid. Okay I think there's another couple of clauses around proven residency and things and having to be there for five years and things like that as well. That's right you it won't apply if you've got a criminal record which also leaves us into the issue of the European arrest warrant. There's been indications that uh, when the UK leaves the European Union it would no longer be part of the agreement on the European arrest warrant. That would be a particular problem to border areas because it would mean basically not only would the police forces not be able to continue to chase people across the border, but people from Northern Ireland who committed a crime here, who escaped to the Republic, uh, same as it was in the Troubles, they wouldn't be able to get an extradition out. Right. So the, the police uh, the police service in Northern Ireland is very, very, very concerned about this, and I imagine the Garda in the South is equally concerned. On the trade and business and uh, the value or impact of Brexit on the economy, and in particular on Northern Ireland, it looks like we're going to be worse hit. The value of cross-border trade, the figures have been released, and then if a hard border comes in, it looks like we're going to be really hardly 
hard hat? Yes, I mean, the, the latest figures uh, from the statistical agency in Northern Ireland shows that uh, there's, there's twice as much business going from the north to the south as there is going from the south to the north. Mm. And in terms of the percentage value to the Northern Ireland economy, it's much greater than the, the value to the, to the Republic of Ireland. So in other words, 30% of Northern Ireland exports go to the Republic compared to a mere 1% of Republic of Ireland exports going into Northern Ireland. Yeah. So that shows the differential impact, potentially, if there are border control. Okay, so it'll hugely impact on the north. Other figures that have come out recently are around the decline in foreign direct investment in the UK since Brexit has been announced. Yeah, we're no longer in the environment where we're talking about what might happen because of Brexit. We're now actually able to count the numbers from what is happening because of Mm. Brexit, even though we are not out of the European Union. In terms of investors, clearly a lot of their concerns are to access the European market, and there's a big shift in foreign direct investment coming into the UK. So that was down wait for it, by £180 billion pounds last year. It was mm. down to just £22 billion. Meanwhile, you've got uh, an increase in the outflow of foreign direct investment. The net figure is basically the UK's lost £300 billion pounds of investment as a result of Brexit. Big, well, it's not all to do with Brexit, of course, but uh-huh. you know, a lot of it will be to do with Brexit. There's a net impact of £300 billion pounds not coming into the UK or leaving the UK. Yeah. Huge, huge sums. More huge sums predicted by people involved with the City of London and the UK insurance industry as well. That's right. Uh, the prediction from uh, Sir Mark Bowley, a well-known figure in the City of London, is that uh, government tax revenues could fall by £10 billion a year because of the impact of the, on the city. Uh, and also that it could uh, reduce maybe uh, Cut seventy five thousand jobs just related to the city of London, you know, directly and indirectly yeah. related to those positions in the city of London. You've also got a number of banks that are setting up in Dublin and Paris, in particular, a bit in Frankfurt as well. So uh-huh. you know, we're losing jobs. All our concerns being expressed through a Murray Stevens report from the technology sector. Yeah, that's right. Most of the technology firms are saying that mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're frustrated that the UK government is not taking into account their concerns in the Brexit negotiations. Um, and they're also worried about the strength of the uh, UK economy. So um, that's not surprising. And, of course, we now have, in addition to that, the announcement from Airbus, one of the biggest companies located in the United Kingdom. It's a cross-border business uh, involving several businesses across the European Union. Uh-huh. Uh, it employs 14,000 people in the UK, and they say they may well leave the UK. They're unhappy at the slow progress of the Brexit negotiations, and they're seriously thinking about disinvesting, and that would be a big hit. Mm. More uncertainty about where Brexit's lateness has, I think, influenced the decision of Somerset, a firm that Jacob Rees-Mogg himself is involved in, talking about opening up an additional facility in Dublin. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And not only is uh, his uh, firm of investment... um, uh, investors moving, uh, well, they're, they're locating some of their new facilities in Dublin. But actually, as well as that, they've actually warned about the, the negative impact on the British oh, economy of Brexit. So there you go. <laughs> uh, okay. But someone's, but someone's enthusiastic anyway, yeah. Gerard, which is that the United States ambassador to the UK has said basically, get on board. It's a good thing. We should be showing more enthusiasm. And, uh, he, you know, it gives us potentially closer trading links with the United States, which is... Um, Shall we say, I don't know whether it's ironic or maybe uh, obvious, because this is just at the same time that the United States and the European Union are imposing additional tariffs on each other. Yeah. And uh, now if you wanted to buy, go out and buy a new Harley-Davidson motorbike, uh, Gerard, you'd be paying extra because the tariffs have just been 
increased on that by the European Union, and it's the same with your next pair of Levi jeans. Aye. They're going to be more expensive than the last ones. I think the jeans will pay more than the, the motorbike, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. And then the famous, the Brexit dividend, the NHS is finally going to do well out of Brexit, apparently. Yeah, yeah. This is one of these things, you know, you, you look in one direction and something's happened in the only way and you find out something different's happened because uh, the, the, it looked uh, in the middle of the month as if um, Theresa May had said there's going to be a Brexit dividend for the NHS and it's going to get extra money and that this was what was put on the side of the bus. Well, then it turned out that this was what number 10 Downing Street said, but it wasn't actually what the Prime Minister said. So the Prime Minister then said, well, no, she didn't quite say that, actually. Um, so it's all a bit confusing about whether they're actually claiming it is the case. But you've got one of the leading Conservative MPs, Sarah Wollaston, who chairs the House of Commons Health Select Committee. She said, quote, don't even begin to swallow any rubbish that this will be some Brexit bonanza. In reality, the tax rises and borrowing will need to be higher as a result. And that's actually the view of most economists, or pretty well all economists, actually. Mm. And um, stop press. We've just got news in from the Centre for European Reform which has calculated that the cost here to the UK economy so far is £23 billion per year, which is £440 million a week, which is rather more than the figure put on the side of the bus. But negative, not positive. Okay. So moving closer to home, uh, um, we talked about the politics of the thing coming back into play here. Uh, UUP leader Robin Swan has been warning against attitudes towards Northern Ireland. Yes, that's right. I mean, a lot of this is to do with uh, a private recording of a speech by Boris Johnson where he's speaking to uh, colleagues within the Conservative Party and people closely associated with the uh, Conservative Party where he's basically saying that uh, we shouldn't allow the the tail to wag the dog and that uh, Northern Ireland was having too big an influence on the negotiations of Brexit. Now, Mm. I suspect this might have been what Robin Swan, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, was thinking about when he gave a warning that UK politicians are acting as if Northern Ireland is expendable in terms of its position within the United Kingdom. Mm. Uh, And I have to say that's a perception which I share in terms of what Boris Johnson said and what Jacob Rees-Mogg has said. It does feel very much, firstly, as if the issue of the Irish border was something that they didn't really think about when they were arguing initially for Brexit, and it still feels as if it's something that they're not really that concerned about. Yeah, it's more a hindrance than a baggage at this absolutely, point. Absolutely, absolutely. And then we've had the, the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, visited the city recently, and you got the opportunity to ask him a question when he was here. Yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do so with the recorder in my hands because it was in a very large meeting held by the uh, London Dairy Chamber of Commerce. But I was able to ask a question in the room. Uh, and what I asked him was, well, why was it that he always talks about wanting to be a member of a customs union rather than a member of the customs union? And I wanted yeah. to know what the difference between the two was. And I'm afraid I didn't learn very much from his answer. He said that uh, the Brexit referendum results showed that people wanted to leave the European Union, that the customs union was central to membership of the European Union. Therefore, we had to leave the customs union. But in terms of answering the question, what's the difference? Uh, He he wouldn't say. No, he didn't say what it was. Okay. Well, Paul, thank you very much for that update. Informative, detailed, slightly scary, as always. But... That is Brexit. Do you have a burning question or query regarding Brexit? Then contact us via email at brexit at hollywelltrust.com or tweet us at hollywellt or leave us a message on our Facebook page and Paul will try and address that issue in a future episode.
previously on this podcast we've heard from Sinn Féin and I'm sure we will again in the future. This time we're going to hear from three different politicians, three local politicians. We're going to hear from Claire Sugden, who's an independent unionist, from Stephen Farry, who's the deputy leader of the Alliance Party, and from Mark Durkin, who's a former leader of the SDLP. But first from Claire. So what was it you started by asking Claire? I asked Claire from the unionist point of view what she thought of the Brexit process so far. It seems that we're in the, a situation of the unknown, um, and I'm not sure that will change as as talks develop and as uh, conclusions are are made as we as we get towards October. And perhaps that was always going to be the case because we haven't found ourselves in a situation before where we're coming out of such a, a big established uh, political situation. So I, I think it's difficult. I think there's a lot of narrative. We still seem to com- be competing with those ideas of whether we we continue ahead with Brexit or not. So I, I think that's kind of muddying the waters of the practicalities. Of, of trying to see this thing through. I, I wouldn't say we're in a positive space. Um, I, I think we're very much down that path and, and we're, we're going to continue until until we get to Brexit. Um, but it's how we take the, the easiest path in doing that. Now, you are representing a different geographical place from the other politicians I've spoken to who are based in Derry. Now, you're based in Coleraine, uh, covering the North Coast as well. I mean, how much of an impact is the uncertainty around Brexit causing you? I mean, clearly, it, closer to the border, there's an obvious lack of investment and difficulty. I mean, does that uh, come over as far as Coleraine and the North Coast? I think so, and I think all of Northern Ireland will absolutely see the impact of Brexit just because of the practical policies that are going to have are going to have to be worked through and that have made life easier in Northern Ireland because of our situation within the EU. But certainly in my constituency, I, I sit on the North Coast and I very much look out my window and see Donegal. And, you know, there, there are uh, ferries that pass between uh, Northern Ireland and Donegal. There, there will be an impact. Um, and I think people are concerned that it hasn't quite been thought through in the way that it should be. Northern Ireland um, is very much unique within the United Kingdom. It, it is the only... Uh, jurisdiction that land borders another member state and I, I am a little bit frustrated that the UK government haven't really given the, the attention that, that that deserves and certainly it seems that sort of in their latter uh, stages of their conversations around Brexit they do start to be wakening up to that, that reality but even at that they, they seem to be pressing ahead and not really using the opportunity that the Republic of Ireland could be in terms of their the whole United Kingdom picture as much as the Northern Ireland one. I, I do think, particularly in East London Dairy, we, we will feel the effects. Um, it won't be just the border concerns. It will be the issues like uh, European arrest warrant, which obviously I have an interest in given my previous role, and all those other practical uh, arrangements that are currently in place. It would be great if there was a smooth transition, but in terms of the European arrest warrant, it, it seems that it's not going to be the case. And certainly when I was minister and Brexit had just uh, happened, or the, the vote had just happened, European arrest warrant was one of the, the examples of something that we could move over very smoothly. And now, a year later, we're saying that that's not the case. And of course, you're speaking as the former Minister of Justice for Northern Ireland. As a constituency MLA, I mean, your constituency is very dependent on tourism. That's been a big part of your sector. I mean, are you worried about the cross-border flows uh, slowing up as a result of Brexit? Not really, because I think in, in terms of tourism, we've really only managed to exploit that in the past five years. So five years ago, you know, we, we, we had a situation where we were very much part of the EU. So I think it's really only the opportunities 
that have been realised through tourism locally and practically um, in the sense that the, the local authorities are very much exploiting uh, the tourism product here. Tourism Ireland has done a fantastic job overseas for Northern Ireland and that will be protected whether we're in the EU or not and they have a responsibility to promote all of the island and, and Northern Ireland particularly. You know, I, I've very much noticed in, in the past six months to a year the number of Chinese tourists that are coming to Northern Ireland and that absolutely is because of a particular campaign that was targeted in China. I, I, I don't have any concerns in terms of of the, the tourism product, you know, I think we sell ourselves and people will come across the border as they do every other part of the world. I suppose I have more concerns about the the trade aspects and the free movement of travel across the border. Um, I think as well, and I say this as a unionist, there are opportunities on an all-Ireland basis in terms of our wider public services that we need to look at. And I would have a concern that we would be more limited because of Brexit and, and being able to exploit that. And of course, there's been you know particularly positive impact in terms of the cross-border cancer uh, care at uh, Atlagalvin. Now, just on that last point, uh, Claire, that I'm very pleased that as a unionist, you've uh, spoken to us and uh, been interviewed by us because we've had difficulty. The Unionist Party uh, MEP declined to be interviewed by us because he wasn't available, and we've put in eight requests to the DUP. None of those requests have been successful. So, as the only unionist who so far be willing to speak to us, I mean, do you want to give us an insight about how unionism in particular feels about the Brexit uh, challenge coming ahead? I suppose it depends on which unionist you speak with. Um, I, I can't you know, say that I speak for, for every unionist and certainly there are some unionist parties that wouldn't represent my view on Brexit. Um, I was a Remain voter. I think the, the difficulties that we had with staying within the EU could have very much been worked through and we could have strengthened um, our, our position within Europe. That said, I, you know, the United Kingdom has voted to leave. Northern Ireland is part of that. I, I, I do respect the fact that People in Northern Ireland themselves wouldn't have voted for that, but we can't look at it on that basis. We, we're under the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom. So I, I think now we have to put our best foot forward. In terms of Brexit, um, um, we have to work out all those difficulties that are going to present themselves as challenges. Ultimately, we have to get an executive back up and running because whilst the DUP are in a really good position to to convince the UK government to do what's best for Northern Ireland, I think it's better if we have a more collective voice in and around that. But it's going to be difficult because most of the political parties in Northern Ireland have contrary positions on this issue. Um, ironically, when, when I was in the, the executive, the position on bre- Brexit was that this is the result and um, we have to now put our best foot forward. But there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, so those, those positions maybe have somewhat changed. But and how we can best exploit our position, you know, both within the United Kingdom, within Europe, not, not the, the, the formal arrangement of Europe, but within Europe and then in the rest of the world. Uh, It would have been good to have uh, other unionist uh, voices on this podcast. I have tried very hard to get the DUP to engage. In fact, I've made eight requests in all, and all have either been declined or ignored. The most recent ones were to request Gary Middleton, MLA, to come on. Uh, His office confirmed that they received the the request, but uh, I didn't get a further response about whether he was prepared to do it. Uh, And similarly, I contacted the DUP press office, and they didn't come back to me. Okay. Well, hopefully they'll choose to do it in the future because I think it's an important voice on Brexit that we'd love to hear through the podcast. That was great to hear from Claire. Stephen Farry too, you met at a very noisy Alliance Party event, I believe. Um, what was it that you were chatting to Stephen about? Well, yes, uh, it was, I'm afraid, a, a very noisy Alliance Party event in the city. Um, but I did manage to get to speak to Stephen and I asked him again what he felt was going on in terms of the Brexit negotiations and where he thought we would end up. 
We are taking a practical and pragmatic approach and what we're saying is that a special deal for Northern Ireland is essential uh, but it's also important that we understand that it's been entirely consistent with the current uh, political uh, situation. It's something consistent with the devolution project, with the Good Friday Agreement and in particular uh, the principle of consent. Uh, ideally, uh, we would like the UK as a whole to reconsider Brexit uh, and if, if not that, then the UK itself uh, stays uh, within the single market and also has a fresh customs union with the European Union. Uh, but again, if that is not possible, then it's important that we consider Northern Ireland's uh, solutions uh, with respect to both those mechanisms. And so you would be supportive of the idea of a second referendum? Well, yes. I think overall, the, the first line of response has to be for the UK to, to, to potentially reconsider the vote. Uh, I think now that people have seen what Brexit entails a little, little more clearly, have seen the real difficulties that there is in actually uh, entangling the UK from the, the European Union and the real potential economic catastrophe that may unfold. Uh, I think people do need the right to, to reconsider their vote and determine if this is something uh, they do want to do. I mean, we, we change governments potentially every four or five years on an issue like this. It's going to affect people for decades to come. I think it is important that people are entirely sure what they're doing in light of the full information. And of course, the Alliance Party has an alliance with the Liberal Democrats in Great Britain, and that position is really quite closely aligned with the Liberal Democrats. Yes, it's a similar stance to, to, the, to the Liberal Democrats, but it's also important to note that there are other voices uh, within the UK who are also calling for a second referendum. Obviously, people like uh, Owen Smith, um, the former Shadow Secretary of State, uh, made that position clear and unfortunately was then sacked uh, from his role. But there are other voices, particularly within the neighbour and also within wider civil society who also take that, that type of approach. The Highwell podcast Brexit Focus, funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on soundcloud.com, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. And finally, we're going to hear your interview with Mark Durgan. Mark, I believe, addressed the question as well that you had asked Jeremy Corden, you referred to earlier on. Yeah, I, I just really asked Mark again whether he was frustrated about the way things were going on Brexit. Here we are, June. We were meant to have a clear pointer by now. Uh, the fact is the British government has wasted an awful lot of time between December and now. That was a period where the joint report in December had said they would make proposals. Uh, in relation to a number of the questions in Ireland. Uh, and that's not just about uh, the customs questions, but, but there are single market questions, there are all island economy questions, uh, there's the integrity and the durability of North-South cooperation and all of that. Uh, and the British government haven't come up with proposals uh, that substantively address or answer any uh, of those points. So, of course, that means that we uh, drift on. In my view, I think uh, there comes a time where we have to say that maybe just relying on the British government to make proposals isn't enough. When they don't know the problem they've created, uh, when they're not clear how to answer uh, those problems, and when perhaps they're not free uh, to offer answers to those problems because of the Tory tie-up with uh, the DUP, uh, then maybe it is a time for Democratic Ireland to start scripting more of the answers. Because if we know that the British government aren't coming up with answers that meet the Irish requirements consistent with the Good Friday Agreement and other uh, Irish interests, uh, then maybe uh, it is time that we started to script uh, some of those answers, not to do the British government's job for them, but to look after Ireland and the EU's interests according to our insight and our knowledge. So I do think uh, it is time for Democratic Ireland to take a bit more ownership of the future.
now you sat in the House of Commons for many years. Just how much care and concern do you think there is in the House of Commons for the border in Ireland? And come to that, the concern level of interest in the uh, the border question before the Brexit vote? Very little. Uh, the fact was people were very dismissive of any of the Irish concerns or sensitivities. Uh, people just blandly said no, there'd be no issue there. That was particularly people on the Brexit side. But even people on the Remain side, uh, I don't think fully grasped the issue. While some were sensitive to the fact that uh, Brexit and its terms could have implications for uh, the Good Friday Agreement. A lot of people were either making the assumptions that the referendum wasn't going to pass uh, or, in turn, were making assumptions that things would take care uh, of themselves. And now we have a situation where we see the Brexiteers who initially said, oh, Brexit will do no damage to any part of the agreement, no part of the agreement will be diminished uh, by Brexit, have now gone as far as to actually dismissing uh, the agreement as an obstacle in the way of uh, Brexit. Meanwhile, there are some people on the Remain side uh, who have taken a newfound interest uh, in matters Irish and the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And yes, uh, some of them may be using it as a bit of a visual aid uh, in their case uh, against uh, leaving. Uh, But the fact is they have discovered new dimensions to uh, the border in Ireland. Uh, I think we need to straighten out some of their thinking as well in relation to uh, the Good Friday Agreement and the whole history of customs union and the single market here Uh, because a lot of people, even people on the pro-Remain side, forget that it was actually the context of shared membership of the EU in the context of the single market that actually was one of the conditioners for peace. Because I can remember John Hume in the talks with Gerry Adams and in the SDLP Sinn Féin dialogue back in the late 80s and we were arguing that the pending single market in Europe uh, was going to lead to a situation where the customs border could disappear in Ireland and we would then be left only with a security border and the only thing that would be retaining the security border would be violence. And therefore, you know, a lot of people have forgotten uh, the the sequencing of the peace process. And so people need to recognise that uh, the open border is not just the symbol of peace, that Jeremy Corbyn referred to. The open border was actually one of the bringers of peace. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the Northwest, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. So, Paul, any questions on Brexit this month? We haven't had any questions. However, I have had a phone call and email from a senior lawyer in the Republic who has expressed the view that his understanding of the settlement in the 1940s between the uh, the British government and the Irish government was that the British government would approve the recognition of continued British identity for people in the Republic. Uh, And the implication of that clearly would be that people in the Republic could choose to have um, British passports uh, if they wished, in the same way as under the Good Friday Agreement, people can choose whether to have Irish or British identity and passports. He is taking a legal case against the British government because they have declined to 
issue a passport to him. Uh, he contacted me on this and asked me if I could provide any advice to him. I put him in contact with Lord Willie Hay of the DUP, who is in the same situation. Mm. And uh, there is a suggestion that they might be able to take joint legal action to try and pursue their right as people of British identity who are born uh, in the Irish Republic. This question of identity and doesn't go away. It keeps coming back. It's been coming back since 1949 and beyond. Um, I'm sure it will continue to. Absolutely. And and it's understandable that people who would regard themselves as having a British identity who live in the Republic feel that they should have equal rights to those people who regard themselves as having an Irish identity and were born in Northern Ireland and have uh, got Irish passports as a result of that. Well, that's us for another month. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Paul, for your insight as always and your research it's all brilliant and informative thank you to D Kern for our production support remember feel free to get in touch if you have any questions or concerns about Brexit that you'd like us to have a look into you can do that through Hollywell Trust on 02871 or brexit at hollywelltrust.com keep an eye out for Paul's Brexit blog that will appear in the Dairy Journal paper and website and Hollywell social media channels from Friday the 29th of June Look out for this podcast around the 25th of the month and we look forward to talking to you again soon. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell T.